Hello and welcome to the 93 Talks, a podcast brought to you by the UK's largest network of state-educated university students, the 93% Club Foundation. Did you know that 93% of the UK's population is state-educated? This number is not representative of the university population and definitely not represented in the corporate world. It's our mission to rectify this and support those that make it to university. Here on the 93 Talks, we will bring you content with employers, successful professionals and community ambassadors. This is a podcast for students, by students. We are the 93% Club. Serious about social mobility. Hello everyone and welcome to the 93 Talks. Today we have the wonderful Steve Richards, who is a mature student at the University of Gloucestershire. So excited to have you on today, Steve, and to hear a little bit about your experiences. So how are you, how are you doing today? No, I'm fine. Looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited to hear about all the things that you've been up to lately. Um, So just to start off, do you want to tell us a little about your background and your career as an engineer um, and kind of why social mobility is kind of important to you at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think my background is probably similar to many of your members. Uh, I grew up in Chepstow, which is a small town just inside Wales. First place over the old Seven Bridge. If you turn right, you're in Chepstow. And I grew up on a place called Bulwark, which is an enormous council estate that was originally built as a sort of dormitory town for the steelworkers over in Clanwern. And so basically everybody on that estate was in a similar situation to me. We were all working class. We were probably not that well off, but as everybody was in the same boat, we didn't really know any different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to Chepstow School there, which even though Chepstow is a small town, has a large catchment area. So it was quite a big school, several thousand kids. And it was a comprehensive. But it's one of those comprehensives that hadn't changed from being a grammar school that long. So it still had the old grammar school ethos of streaming people quite heavily into different streams. So I was the top two classes in every year were the ones that were expected to get their O-levels and A-levels and go to college. And I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to be in one of those. So we, we pretty much got the best teaching and the most in, encouragement to, to do well in our exams and to apply for university and that kind yeah. of thing. There wasn't any real pressure mm-hmm. from my family because there wasn't really a, a tradition of people going to college in my family. They just wanted me to do well and get a good job, you know. One of the things that high school quite liked, yeah. and I'm sure it's true of a lot of state schools, is they wanted a few people to go to Oxbridge. Um, so they offered you extra coaching to take the, the Oxford or Cambridge exams. So um, I thought, no, I'm not going to go there. So I went to um, Imperial College, which was, if you're outside Oxbridge, that was <laughs> the best place to go to do civil engineering, which is what I wanted to do. Actually, I'm quite glad I didn't bother with Oxbridge because I had a, a, a kind of friend, the brainiest kid in the school who got four A-stars at A-level and uh, they made him sit the exam mm-hmm. and they failed him. So he didn't get in. So I, I think I might have been disappointed as well. And I, I don't know whether that was a class thing, but I mean, if it had been on academic ability, surely he should have got in. So we went to Imperial They were quite a lot of what I would call hooray Henrys at that time, public school boys. Um, But they didn't overwhelm the place. I would say there was it was about a third, a third of public school boys, a third of state school, then a third of overseas students who had a mixture of backgrounds. So then I had quite a nice group of friends in in my uh, 
cohort who were mainly similar backgrounds to me. But we had mm. one, we had a few token toffs who were allowed in, the ones who the ones who uh, didn't like public school. In fact, if you talked to them, you'd think, "Well, thank God I didn't go," because it sounds like a a miserable place to be from seven years old, you know, getting mm-hmm. picked on by prefects and all the rest of it. So I, I, I tended yeah. to think of um, these people as uh, so- yeah. somewhat amusing. Yeah, we had quite a lot of um, people who would go around with this incredible confidence and you'd think, well, why are they so confident? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they they don't seem to be any cleverer than me or any cooler than me, but they really act like they the they, the world is made for them, you know. But initially, I just thought that was quite amusing. But when I I realised the real difference when it came to the end of the course and the milk round. And uh, so I remember one time going into the milk round. So I had my suit and tie on. I thought I looked pretty good. And this guy who I had been with for three years, he came along in his three-piece suit. And he had two ties. He had one round his neck and one sticking out of his pocket. I said to him, what are you doing? Why have you got two ties? He said, oh, well, this is my school tie. This is Marlborough. Yeah. That's the school I went to. And this is my drinking club tie. This is the Imperial College Lions Drinking Club. So if I see anybody who used to be in the Imperial College Lions Drinking Club, then they'll look me yeah. out and they'll, they'll offer me a job. I thought, bloody hell, is that how it works? <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going in there to try and compete on merit, and this guy's going there with his two ties, you know. And I did actually find during that process that it was very difficult to mm-hmm. get people's attention to differentiate yourself from all the others on merit in the very short time you get with people. And it started to dawn on me that this guy with his two ties did have a bit of an advantage yeah. over me. Anyway, in the end, I was rather disappointed with the outcome of the milk round. I didn't get offers yeah. from any of the people that I wanted to work with. Uh, I had uh, aspirations to be a super structural engineer designing mega bridges and airport roofs mm-hmm. and all this kind of thing. But all the big design houses that I applied to turned me down. So I ended up working for a civil engineering contractor called Balfabiti, you may have heard of. And... I was in their design unit, so I was in a you know somebody who built things, but I was doing the designs for them. But it actually turned out great. I mean, in in terms of the career projection it sent me off on, which was completely different. I suspect it was better than the one I would have gone if if, if I'd got what I wanted. Yeah, everything happens for a reason, right? <laughs> but again, I was encountered. I encountered this differentiation between the the two classes because the, the other person who was taken on that year was a Cambridge graduate. He had a first from Cambridge, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure why he ended up with Balfour BT, but anyway. Um, so he came in alongside me and we were both doing our training programs together. And uh, and the guy who ran our training program was ex-Imperial College. So I was thinking, oh, right, this is fine. I'll be okay. You know, I'll, I'll be the favourite. Mm-hmm. But it didn't work that way because he seemed to be in awe of this guy who was, you know, super posh and had the right school and the right college and all the rest of it. And so he was continually favoured over me during the training progress. He used to get on my nerves because, again, he was really quite an uncool guy. I thought, well, I don't really want to be like you, but I'd quite like <laughs> my supervisor to treat me the way that he's treating you, you know. Yeah. I thought, well, I don't know if it's going to carry on like this. I didn't think civil engineering was was that focused upon uh, class and background. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it wasn't fair enough. It it was just a problem during the the training. And 
because that uh, company Balfabiti was involved in the Channel Tunnel, I transferred over to work on that in 1986, I think it was. And then I was working for this really gruff Scotsman from Glasgow, who, you know, probably wouldn't have given the time of day to anybody posh anyway, so it didn't really matter. And, and from then on, I felt like it was a meritocracy, you know, that I, I got on because of what I did, how hard I worked and how clever I was, and it never really came up again. <laughs> well, and you said, I mean, you've done really well since university, so um, I know you've worked on kind of projects worldwide and things, um, and our members were kind of curious um, to how you adapted to different working cultures, and if you had any tips for members who maybe are working kind of in different um, countries and things like that, working on projects in different areas. Yeah, I mean, the important thing to remember is that the culture will be different. Mm -hmm. And so look out for that and try and work out what it is and then how you adapt your style accordingly. So, for example, I worked in the Far East. So I'm coming from a UK construction background where there's lots of effing and blinding and aggression in the meetings. Yeah. If you can't fight your corner, you, you don't get your way kind of thing. You try and do that in Singapore, for example. Mm -hmm. And it fails big time because losing your temper is really losing face in these meetings. And what you'll find is they won't join in. They'll just sit back and they'll let you blow off steam and they'll agree with you. And they'll go away and do exactly what they were going to do anyway. So you haven't won the argument. Yeah. It's just that they're not going to play this stupid Western game of shouting at you. So it's much better yeah. to stay you know, calm and quiet and give them the respect that's due so that you get to the end of the meeting and an agreement is actually valid. And then I worked in Denmark and it wasn't quite as strong, but again, they didn't like conflicts. And mm -hmm. we had an interesting problem was in the UK, in the construction industry, if you fall behind on something, what you tend to do is you offer everybody overtime, they bite your hand off for overtime, and you work double shifts to get back on programme. Well, it doesn't work in Denmark because they get taxed so much that on overtime they only see about 20p in the pound or something. So they don't want overtime, they want time off in lieu. So if you try and apply the same rules as in the UK, you continually fall behind because they're always on holiday. So, you know, you, you, really the UK approach only works in the UK and that's that's the only place you can use it. I think. So be adaptable is the message there. <laughs> um so you're also the president of the Toastmasters Public Speaking Club. What would be your best advice for improving your public speaking skills and overcoming nerves in that sense? Yeah, you, I mean, uh, public speaking is all about confidence and uh, you need to practice it in a place which isn't scary. And that's what we did in this Toastmasters Club. Basically, we would have a dinner every couple of weeks where four or five people would speak. And then we would give them feedback in between having a glass of wine and a nice meal. And it was very relaxed. Mm -hmm. The feedback was, you know, very, very gentle. A lot of the people were doing it in a second language. So you can imagine that they were very nervous. And so yeah. the, the first time they would speak, they would do it reading from notes very, you know, quietly, didn't raise their voice, weren't very fluent. We found that in three or four months of getting this nice feedback and they got more and more confident. By the end of it, the notes were gone away. They were standing up straight, speaking to the back of the room, doing it all right. 
And then when they had to go and do it in the workplace, they, they had the confidence of knowing that they'd done it right in this sort of nicer environment. So it was great for them. So, yeah, the secret with the public speaking is basically confidence. You've got to build up that confidence in an environment where you're not uh, so nervous and you're not going to, the, the consequences of getting it wrong are not going to be very bad. So what we used to do in the Toastmasters Club is have a nice dinner every couple of weeks with a glass of wine and a steak or something. Mm -hmm. And then four or five people would talk. And then after the next course, we would give them feedback on, oh, you did this well, but you could improve a little bit there. And we used to find that within a few months, people who were stammering wrecks at the beginning reading from their notes were speaking quite fluently at the end of it. And then once you've got over that hump that you know you can get up and you can get through 10 minutes of speaking, on your own without the notes then you can grow from there and it's, uh, it's if you can find a toastmasters club in the uk or something like it it's a very good way of improving that for you yeah i think public speaking is definitely a thing um that a lot of people struggle with as well and especially making kind of that jump from university to kind of getting a job um you have to have that confidence don't you and i think a lot of our members will resonate with that um so i think having that skill behind you and really working on that and making sure you kind of increase your ability in that area is something that um, would be really helpful so thank you for that um so now you are now studying for a conversion degree in psychology That's is right. that correct yeah so what inspired that change from kind of your um, engineering career to psychology and what do you want to do with your degree going forward because I'm really interested in this <laughs> <laughs> well it's to be honest, and my classmates find this rather funny when I tell them it's mainly for fun, um, because I've always enjoyed psychology and I've kind of been an amateur mm -hmm. psychologist applying what I've read about in my management over the years. But really, I'm yeah. just doing it because I'm very interested in it. So when I, I retired three years ago, I think, and I did a few voluntary things where I had to do some training. And I thought, well, to be honest, I enjoy the training more than I enjoy the work. So why not just go the whole hog and do a degree? So I'm doing it over two years. All of the volunteering work that attracts me is somehow related to the psychological sphere. But I think it's unlikely mm -hmm. that I'll get to a point where I'm qualified so that I can actually get through the door based on my qualifications. So it's mainly going to be getting through the door because I'm you know I'm interested and I've got some business yeah. and organizational skills that they can use you know yeah I really admire that um I I am really fascinated by psychology myself and I think it's really cool that you've um kind of decided to go back to university and pursue kind of this alternate kind of path um so are you are you enjoying the course then so far yeah it's great I mean, you have to watch out with psychology because you tell people that you're doing it, they all think, oh, you're going to psychoanalyze me. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't really teach you how to psychoanalyze people. It mainly teaches you how to do research on people, various techniques and theories that uh, would lead you on to a, a specialized discipline later on. But it's all good fun. And it's nice to, even though we're along, on Zoom a lot, I mean, I think... Like most students at the moment, we'd enjoy it more if we were face-to-face -face on campus. But we have met each other a few times. And then when we're on the Zoom, well, we use Teams, actually, Microsoft Teams. And we yeah. have quite a, a good get-together. I've got a nice uh, study group. There's uh, four or five of us together. Actually, they were around yesterday. That's why we were drinking the champagne. <laughs> and, 
Yeah, and the, the material itself is, is, is fascinating, but it does actually prepare you for a career as a psychologist rather than just teach you how people tick, you know? So it's yeah, it's it's quite technical and, and it's quite difficult. So it's, it's good. It's, it's been a nice challenge for me. But I've deliberately done it uh, part-time so that I've got time for other voluntary work alongside it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we'll go on to that now. Um, so since retirement, you have worked a lot um, with a lot of other organisations such as the Sex Plane and Good Lad and we know you are setting up a nightline service at the University of Gloucestershire if that's correct. Um, that's right. Can you kind of summarise for our listeners what these organisations do, why do you believe these initiatives are important and how has this work kind of affected you personally? Yeah sure. So I've always been interested in helping young people, teenagers and sort of early 20s, that sort of area, Mm -hmm. because that was a time of my life where I occasionally found things a bit difficult. So I thought it'd be nice to try and help people through it. So uh, Sexplain and Good Lad are both ideal for that. Sexplain does sex and relationship education workshops in schools, which is compulsory now, I think, since September, that schools have to run these programs. And it's not that easy for teachers to do that thing to people that they see every day. So mm-hmm. Sexplain come in and uh, do a workshop, give them sex positive information to girls and boys, you know, teaching them a bit about relationships, not making sex something that's dangerous, which either gets you pregnant or dead, but is actually quite nice, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And good lad, just focus on boys. They They go in and do workshops in schools and try and undo some of the negative stereotyping the boys have picked up, some of the misinformation that they've picked up, give them a more positive attitude towards uh, the opposite sex and their own sex, in fact, give give them alternative ways of growing up as a man. And of course, both of those ground to a halt last March, April, um, because it was all in schools and schools shut down. So those programs kind of died. And What they did during the year since has been to focus on things they wanted to do. So Sexplain wanted to become a charity. They've now converted themselves to a charity and they're now called School of Sexual Education. Right. And Good Lad, they wanted to rebrand. So they've now rebranded themselves as Beyond Equality. Mm -hmm. And they've developed quite a nice program because... The trouble with doing going in and doing a workshop with kids for three hours and going away again is you have an effect, but it's very short, you know, in duration. Mm-hmm. Whereas now they've got what they call the whole school project, where they go and they do workshops, but they teach the teachers how to carry on, give leave, leave them with material they can work on, and so you end up with a program throughout the year which is focused upon positive masculinities, and and then the effect, you know, will be be longer lasting. So they. They've done quite a good job. But of course, for the last year, they didn't need me particularly because my role was was mainly working in the schools. Mm -hmm. So I looked around at college to see what uh, else I could do and came up with this idea of the nightline. Basically, the nightline is an overnight service, starts 8 p.m. at night, keeps going till 8 a.m. in the morning. And it's there to answer calls from students who are having a difficult time when the student services themselves are closed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we listen to their problems. We uh, give a sympathetic ear. They like the fact that we're also students on the line. So, they, you know, we relate to their problems. Yeah. 
if we can, we give them useful information and referral to things that they can go back to in the day. But uh, we're setting it up at the moment. We're hoping to go live in September. Yeah. Well, I've already got a committee of 14 people and vol 35 volunteers who want to do the lines. So at the moment, I'm busy wow. training everybody up to do that. That's amazing. It's, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Yeah, that's that's incredible, honestly. Um, why what, is there any like particular reason why? Um, because I really admire the fact, you know, that you've retired and you've done all of your work and you kind of you've you want to give back now. Um, and I think it's amazing and incredible all the work you are doing to kind of help young people. Um, is there any like particular um reasons behind your kind of drive to do this, or is it just something that you've always wanted to do? Well, I would say I've probably always wanted to do it, but I mean, I was so busy with work. Yeah. I really had little time to do things. I was a Samaritan for a few years, which helped a few people. But then when I was working overseas in Luxembourg, it was culturally difficult to do this kind of volunteering yeah. because of the language barrier and things. So I was quite keen when I came back to do something like that. But like I say, I mean, I when I was in school, I had a bit of bullying around the age of 14, 15. There didn't seem much in the way of support networks for me at that time. Mm. Certainly my mates weren't a lot of use because they were all sort of macho men who, you know, mm -hmm. take you down the pub and slap you on the back kind of thing, but not yeah. going to help you emotionally. So I think that's the drive that, because it seems to me that things haven't improved that much in the 40 odd years since I was doing mm -hmm. it. And, you know, it's it's... I would like to try and help the next generation have a better time of it. You know? Yeah, I think you definitely are. I think all the work that you're doing um, with these kind of charities and organisations is incredible. Um, and I know that all of our listeners will feel the same way as me and be re like really admirable that you're doing this. Um, so, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, we are absolutely thrilled to have had you on the recording with us today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and I'm sure our listeners will love listening to this recording. Um, so thanks again, Steve, um, from me and everyone at the 93% Club. Lovely, thank you. And if there's anything I can do more to help the 93% Club, then let me know, because I think it's a brilliant idea. Yes, of course. We, are, we welcome you on board anytime. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Elle. Bye-bye.